Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about Kevin McDonald's new Whitney Houston documentary and the second series of the Netflix series Glow. Anna has also watched the Ali Wong comedy special Hard Knock Wife for the first time, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. Caroline is extremely well rested after her holiday, one would hope. Yeah, I'd say so. It being incredibly hot hasn't exactly helped, though. I am not a creature of the heat. I've been waking up every morning and opening the curtains and being like, oh, no, it's still not raining. I am a creature of the heat. And, you know, I've been loving England's heat wave. It's been maybe two weeks now of just Mm, like absolutely gorgeous weather every day, really hot. And I've been loving it apart from... (laughs) I've been spending a lot of time at my boyfriend's house lately, which is cooler than my house. The nights that I have spent at my own home have just been slightly hellish. There was one night the other night where I woke up at 3am and had a cold bath while like slightly despairing about my life and how I was never going to fall back asleep ever. You know, when you can't sleep and like the entire world seems like an enormous trauma that you have to endure. (laughs) Yeah, so that's been the low point of the heat wave for me. But the high point has been a lot of drinking in the sunshine and a lot of swimming at the Lido. Yeah, those things are good. Yeah, I've definitely been doing the cold bath thing as well, which is just seems absurd. But then I saw someone on Twitter pointing out that it's not that surprising that we have to do that because our houses are built to keep heat in. I know. To keep heat out. In the winter, it's like my boyfriend's is shit and my house is amazing. But (laughs) (laughs) right now, it's just reverse situation. Yeah. So, as always in the heat wave, one of my favorite things to do is go and sit in an air conditioned cinema with a great big fountain coke and some sweeties. So, that's what we've been doing this week. And the first thing that we're going to talk about today is Whitney, a new documentary by Kevin McDonald about the life and career of Whitney Houston. It features It features lots of interviews with Houston's friends and family and never before seen archival footage of her life and work. So um, there's been a kind of flurry of reinterest in Whitney Houston, I feel, lately. There was another documentary about Whitney released fairly recently. And this is, you know, a theatrical release by an Oscar winning or Oscar nominated, can't fully remember, filmmaker and it's a huge it's a huge release and it's a it's a big documentary about Whitney Houston so it is searching to kind of define a narrative of her life isn't it 
Yeah, it is. I found it such a bizarre thing to go and see. Just for a tiny bit of context, I went to like an Odeon on a Friday night in Liverpool and was really surprised to see that it was completely rammed like mm. in a way that I wouldn't necessarily expect for a music documentary mm. on a night when, you know, there are other big blockbustery summary films mm-hmm. available. But yeah, it was absolutely, the screening was absolutely rammed with hen parties and everybody there seemed to be hoping for, I don't know what the kind of pattern music documentary would be but hoping for some kind of like sing-along yay Whitney she had some great songs type thing because every time any music played in this documentary like everyone in the screening would start singing Mm. and then because it's not that kind of documentary it would immediately get cut off or be fragmented in some way and there would be like booing and hissing from people who were just really getting into singing Mm. um Some people got up and left during it as well. Wow. Clearly just not into its sort of exploration of her backstory as opposed to just like playing her music videos. So that I found really interesting as a way to watch it Um, Mm. because, yeah, it's clearly like not what people have been expecting. But it also wasn't remotely what I was expecting because... I think I'd read some stuff about how, you know, Kevin MacDonald has been given, for whatever reason, her estate has chosen to favour his documentary with like huge amounts of access and archive material that they've never released before, whereas they haven't done that for anyone else before. Mm. And so, you know, you've got interviews with her mum, with her dad's dead, isn't he? But, um, you know, with her brothers, uh, like everyone seemingly who worked for her, even Bobby Brown is in it a tiny bit, although there are obviously some things that he just refused to talk about, which Mm -hmm. was a bit weird. So yeah, you've got a lot of that like classic talking head style stuff in it mixed in with archive footage of her. So that's home movies made behind the scenes of her tours or early tv appearances that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and and the, this is the part that i found really odd about it though is that it that is all then intercut with contemporary news footage mm. of what was happening at the time so mm-hmm. you see like bits of the gulf war and race riots in new jersey mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff which yeah i i was not expecting to see that kind of thing on screen in a documentary about whitney houston i don't know about you yeah, I found that slightly weird sometimes. And it, it was used as a device to try and give you a flavour of the political atmosphere at the time. But it is a bit strange to see these kind of videos of, of Whitney cut in with like one second you'd get a flash of the inauguration of Bill Clinton and then you'd get a flash of Whitney and then you'd go back to another flash of like OJ wearing the gloves at his trial yeah. and then back to Whitney and then Diana's funeral suddenly. And you know, it's a way of them trying to say, like, this is the politics and this is what was happening with race and this is what was happening with enormous celebrity. And and, and I do get what they're trying to do. But for me, it just it just didn't it just felt a bit cheap and it didn't quite work for me. Yeah, I felt it was an odd technique as well to use for a singer like Whitney Houston, who. As far and I could be I could be wrong about this, but I think if it existed, they would have shown it in the documentary is did she ever talk about race or politics or mm. align herself with any kind of political cause? I'm not aware that she was like a big civil rights uh, no. activist. 
But I think they were trying to suggest that by, you know, intercutting discussion of her upbringing with stuff about race riots and so on. But she wasn't that kind of singer. She wasn't that kind of activist. Yeah, I think what they were trying to do was like project, demonstrate the amount that could be projected onto an enormous mm. young black celebrity at that period and at that time for how it was meaningful that the person getting the most consecutive number ones in the US was a black woman. Like, And I, I do get that and I do think that's interesting, but the documentary wasn't really about her impact on society. It was about her life. Yeah. So it felt, it does feel slightly odd in that context. I also, you know, I'm one thing I was interested by and another area where I felt like the documentary fell down for me is as you say, it's mostly kind of talking head stuff. And that can be really interesting because it can just give you a totally new window onto a person. And although you can obviously have an incredibly successful documentary that doesn't spend that much time with its direct subject, I would be really interested to know kind of in numbers how much time the documentary actually spends giving voice Mm. to Whitney Houston. Because apart from her singing bits and there are these bits of footage of her archival footage talking in terms of like lines if we treated it as a drama she doesn't get very many at all and no I thought that as well she's really absent and I feel like I get a big I get I get I get a bit of a sense of how important she was to the culture I get a bit of a sense of how important she was to different individuals in her life whether it's her auntie or someone else I don't get a sense of her personality or her character or what she was actually like to hang out with and spend time with and who she was as a person. And part of the point the documentary is trying to make is that maybe she wasn't that in touch with who she was as a person because Mm. she was spending so much time being a celebrity and spending so much time being high. But it really didn't... I think it's a big flaw in a documentary if you don't get a sense of someone's character from it. That's that's a a massive hole, right? Like, you get more of that from her the scenes where you see her singing than anything else. And so for me, it's like, what's the point of this documentary if I get more of a sense, you know, going on YouTube and looking at live performances of Whitney Houston of who she actually was? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that it's always an issue, isn't it, with a documentary or a biography or anything of a celebrity where their estate and their family is fully signed up to the product when Mm. it's kind of authorised in that Mm. way. Because it can be incredibly interesting as an artifact of like what the estate wants the legacy to look like. You know, for instance, I thought some of the stuff in this film about Whitney's friend Robin and the suggestion that maybe they were an item and maybe Whitney was either lesbian or bi or whatever. Mm. That's a really interesting part of both perhaps of her her own self, but also of how she was treated at the time. Mm. Whereas in this documentary, it was kind of, blown past really quickly with just family members being like yeah Robin was a bad influence we didn't like Robin yeah I thought that was quite good though because I thought it quite accurately got at the homophobia of the family Mm. whilst not kind of not saying it it like they allowed the family to you know implicate themselves in their language and there were kind of groans in the audience um, Mm. in my screening from that and another moment where you really felt like, God, these people were culpable in a lot of the problems she had was when um, the the CEO of her record label, L.A. Reid, says, oh, I was never actually um, aware of her addiction problems. That yeah. was not something that anyone told me. And the whole cinema that I was in were like, 
you know come on mate fuck off like <laughs> that's not true um yeah there, I think it was good that the director did allow those people to kind of say that stuff on camera unmediated mm. but then maybe what I was looking for was then like where's the opposing view where's mm, there was where, one line you know, where someone said maybe her family I think her family were homophobic but mm. it's kind of left at that I do I do get what you're saying you know that it is I think I think Gavin McDonald has done the best you can with an authorized documentary mm. in that sense but yeah there is always something about like when there's family cooperation you maybe aren't as free to make mm-hmm. the points that you want to make um, but it is still interesting as an artifact of like what that family are trying to do with her legacy and how they want to be perceived now definitely one part that I thought was really successful as well was the the part about the allegations of child abuse in her past mm-hmm. from an auntie and I thought that was something that I didn't know about Whitney Houston until relatively recently when some there have been some stories about it circling in the press. And I don't know whether this documentary is what allowed that to happen or whether the documentary has been allowed to explore it because of those headlines over the past kind of six months. But um, that was really kind of, you know, there's a, there's a very fine line between feeling like overly voyeuristic and like tragedy porny. But for me, the child abuse stuff felt like some of the, best explored mm. stuff you know speaking to family members in a very sensitive way about it and saying like do you think she felt more shame because it was a woman not a man you know these kinds of like really difficult questions I thought it was really good that those were explored and but there were other points when they were exploring addiction and her death and all of that stuff towards the very end of her life that I found tragedy porn like and sensationalist yeah. and a bit horrible to watch and a bit like why why do I need to why does half this documentary have to be about her drug addiction why can't I don't know it just felt a bit horrible to me in a way yeah definitely and I also I I feel the same in the way it was kind of weighted because the one the big thing for me that was missing from this documentary was the music mm. and no I don't mean in the sense that they played lots of clips of her singing and lots of her performances but I wanted to know about her musical processes. Like we saw that, you know, she got these seven incredible number ones on the trot, but like who wrote them? Who gave Mm. her the songs to sing? How Mm. involved was she in the interpretation of them? All of that. How did they choose what this incredibly young, brilliant vocalist was going to release first? That's the kind of stuff I would have liked to know about because the documentary did slightly give the impression through the absence of that, that it all just sort of magically happened. Mm, that she, she was just, maybe just a mouthpiece. That it somehow, well, not even that, but just necessarily, but just that the songs appeared, she sang them, people bought mm, the records mm. and it was all incredibly successful. But obviously mm. that's not how a career works. Mm. And the few clips you did get of like her rehearsing and her working with her backing singers, I was like, yeah, this is the kind of, stuff about Whitney I would like to know is you know how creatively involved was she in designing her own career Mm. this is really interesting but without any of that stuff she did become through the film this figure that appeared to just kind of drift into success and then drift into tragedy and then she died yeah and that I thought was quite sad because my biggest takeaway to be honest from this film was what an incredible voice she had mm-hmm. and yeah, also there's this early performance that they showed twice of her I think it, they said it was her first tv performance of her singing this song home where I was just like she is an incredible technical vocalist mm-hmm. you can see it in a song like that which is more a kind of conventional soul song than maybe some of her poppier stuff later that her like 
breath and diaphragm control and all of that technical stuff that is maybe more associated normally with classical, almost opera singers. She had it all and she was doing it unbelievably well. And there aren't that many pop singers who do. And I was just really, really interested to know, like, how did she get to sing like that? What did she think Mm. about it? How important was technique? All that kind of thing. And it just, yeah, it was just made to look like it just magically happened when Mm. obviously a huge amount of work goes into singing like that. Mm, Totally. An incomplete documentary, I think, for us. An incomplete, but certainly a thought-provoking one, yeah. Mm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the next thing we're going to talk about is Glow which is a Netflix series based on a fictionalised version of the 1980s Women's TV Wrestling League in the US called The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. This show stars Alison Brie, Betty Gilpin and Mark Maron. And in this second series, the characters have to surmount new challenges as their wrestling show actually gets picked up for a full season. I really loved the first season of Glow because I think it's mm, just... Me too. Even if it's not like the most technically um, radical or excellent piece of television going i think it it struck a really beautiful tone um that's like funny but you know has enough kind of drama and character to keep you moving forward so that's kind of what i really liked about it and you do you know i'm a sucker for these kind of group shows ensemble shows with lots of women because i love watching Mm, like you know complicated but loving relationships between women kind of play out on stage. And they had a really good kind of frenemy dynamic with the, with the best friends that have gone through an incredible betrayal. Uh, and I, yeah, so I'm quite excited to return to Glow, but due to time constraints in my life, my human life, I have only watched one episode of, of uh, the second series, which uh, for me was just lovely. And it kind of, it was maybe slightly nostalgic, that first episode, and you don't get too much drama in in the first episode it's more like look at this wonderful lovely ensemble cast of great women and we watch them kind of make a um the title sequence for the tv show of glow that they're kind of working on every day 
Ruth, the lead played by Alison Brie, goes kind of off the rails and just decides to make the title sequence herself, which, you know, cut to lots of great shots of them all running and screaming around a mall in a Avril Lavigne skater boy style way. And, you know, there's a nice opening sequence where they're all taking a photograph together. Like it's just lots of kind of like nice moments like that. So it kind of eases you into the second season, I'd say, although there are kind of conflicts happening below the surface none of them really bubble up fully in that first episode but Caroline you've watched a lot more than me I believe yeah this happened with the first series of Glow as well where I you know watched a couple of episodes and was like oh I like mm, this totally. it's easy on the eye as you say it there's nothing much to kind of snag my irritations on because it's got a great and diverse cast of women who most of whom actually get to have like storylines and do stuff and I like the music. I like the aesthetic of it. You know, it's sort mm, of it's like Orange is the New Black without any conflict or prison. <laughs> yeah, without any like <laughs> horribleness. Although there is a bit of horribleness in this season later on. But uh, yeah, so I sort of sat down to watch a couple, and then somehow before the weekend was out, I'd watched almost all of it. Um, and I have just everything barring like the last ten minutes of the of the final episode, which yeah, don't really know how that happened. But yeah, it is definitely testament to the fact that. The show is just really mm. like easy on the eye and easy on the brain. And I don't know, I feel like I say this all the time and then politics gets worse. But this this is a moment when I am sometimes in the market for something like this that is just nice to watch and is technically competent enough that it doesn't like engage my yeah. brain. I think this is what I do with Love hard. Island, where like literally it gets to 6 p.m in the work day when when there's been like a stressful work day with lots of stressful news and all I can think about is like soon your hour of bliss will arrive from 9 p.m to 10 (laughs) p.m where your brain is in a warm bath of you know misguided clothing and people saying join the do bits society and it just we'll have to talk about love island at some point because it really is serving uh, well, you're going to be subjected to it. I'm going to force you. But yeah, definitely it's important to have things that serve that purpose in this current time. Yeah, and Glow does do that. I was actually slightly disappointed when I was watching with the first like three to four episodes because I felt like they were focusing too much on Mark Maron's character and his feelings when mm, he is that's not interesting. the person the that I care The one male about, lead. Know. Exactly. And also um, the referee character, Bash, I felt was getting a bit too much attention. It was basically all about their feelings and how do they feel when they've created this show that has all of these incredible strong women in it. And then they get all masculinity so fragile when the women actually want to have creative control and direct things and be a producer and, you know, shake things up a bit. And I was a bit like, well... I, I'm sure this is realistic that these men would behave like this, but it's kind of not what mm. I want to have screen time yeah, in this TV show. But, and I'm now going to do a slight spoiler, so anyone who is going to binge Avert through your Glow, ears. maybe skip ahead. Avert your ears. There is, I think it's in episode five, there is a turning point that I found so interesting when, just to set it up briefly, Glow has been on the air it's on in a sort of late evening time slot. It's going well, but they haven't quite got the ratings that they were hoping for. And uh, the producers are expecting to be co- to have a big meeting with the network the next day in which they're expecting to have to like pitch for the rest of their season and pitch to keep on the air. And then the night before, Alison Bree's character 
gets called to a dinner with the network chief and she's and he wants to discuss her career and she's all like oh wow maybe he's seen me on the show and maybe this is my big break and I'll go and then she goes to this dinner and then everything about it is like textbook Mm -hmm. me too and it's horrific you know she turns up at the restaurant and they're like oh actually he's taken a private bungalow you'll be having dinner in there and then there's someone at a lower network executive that she knows is there as well and then that guy's like oh I'm just gonna go to the restaurant I won't be back for a while and leaves and she's like oh no and then indeed the guy does like try and come on to her and it's really horrible and she runs away and then the next day the producers are told that like oh no your show's been moved to 2am we we Mm. don't care about it it's not for you know so then she has all this guilt around you know should I have just let that guy sleep with me would it have been better for the show um her erstwhile best friend played by Betty Gilpin like yells at her and is like this is just how the world works you just have to let men do what they want you know you're so selfish everyone else's job was riding on it so that that is really a kind of like Mm, nexus of tension for then the next few episodes is the fact that she ran away she didn't like allow a man to rape her (laughs) for the good of the show but then the really the point where I think Glow makes a decision that other TV shows wouldn't have done is that finally a couple of episodes this episode later... episode eight, because I've seen a lot of people in my sort of Twitter timeline yeah, talking about this amazing piece of so. writing, episode eight. So Mark Maron's character is... He's completely out of, out of his mind because he cannot understand what he did wrong. Why is his show being punished? He thinks it's going well. Actually, for the first time, he's doing a job properly. He's this kind of deadbeat 70s, like, porny horror director. But he was doing this properly and it was going well. So why is he? Why is his show being punished and why is it being dumped in a 2am slot? And then finally, Alison Brie, like, gets up the courage and she tells him. And obviously, you can just see she's braced to get another storm of, like, victim blaming and, oh, my God, why couldn't you have just, like, done what he wanted? You're so, like, you're so selfish, blah, blah, blah. And instead, he's like what a horrible thing to happen to you. What a terrible sleazy guy. But I'm kind of relieved because now I know that it's nothing we did. That guy's just a sleazebag and he's just taking out his horrible feelings on our show when actually we didn't do anything Mm. wrong. I feel hugely relieved. This is great, but are you okay? And suddenly you're like, oh, maybe this is a real human rather Mm. than a horrible caricature. Maybe he's actually being nice to a woman who he's friends with. And maybe this show is something better than what maybe it had looked mm. like for the previous few episodes. So that that for me was like, oh, wow, Glow is actually a step above. And whilst I don't, I'm not big into like only women can make good things about women. I do think the fact that this show is directed and largely written by women mm. might have had something to do with how That's long so that was handled. I'm, it's, it's funny because it's not necessarily the place that you'd ex- you'd go for immediately for discussions like that. Though, of course, it does make sense because it's essentially a program about women working in the entertainment industry in a different, in a slightly gone era. Um, so, in a lot of ways, it's the perfect place for those kinds of discussions. It's just perhaps not tonally the place you'd go straight to for that. Mm. Yeah, and maybe as well, if, I don't know. It's a bit of a caricature of that kind of situation because. Obviously, Glow is a show in which women wear provocative outfits and like pretend to wrestle each other for men's titillation. So it is a bit of an extreme example that then someone who's taking part in that would also then be preyed upon 
in that manner when obviously it was happening in far less extreme and everyday circumstances than that but yeah it does it does work Mm, as a forum for those discussions and yeah I think the decisions they made with Mark Maron's character are really really interesting that he he surprises you but he he continues to be an awful person but he's an awful person Mm. with some redeeming features and they allow him to kind of step back at times to give Alison Brie and others like the moment and they give them the good lines and them the important dialogue and so yeah it does really flip on its head the feeling I had from the first couple of episodes that it was like too much about men and their feelings okay cool well I'll I'll pursue it further So last week, Caroline recommended that I watch the Netflix comedy special Hard Knock Wife uh, by the comedian Ali Wong, who is incredibly pregnant in this Netflix Mm -hmm. special. I don't watch a lot of Netflix comedy specials, actually. I don't know if you do, but it's just No, I don't either. This is possibly the first one I've ever watched. Yeah, and they do, they obviously have um, a huge like segment of Netflix that's essentially devoted to like a lot of stand-up comedy and comedy specials like this um and we are we were saying that we we are thinking of talking about another one of those nanette um in the future but yeah i don't watch a lot of them so this is one of the first netflix comedy specials i've watched and i really really loved it i think she has so much charisma from the second Mm. she walks on stage you know this incredibly she's like skinny small asian woman but massive huge pregnant belly um and as soon as she steps out on the stage there's just kind of something quite provocative and challenging going on in her eyes all the time. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like she's wearing a kind of really tight leopard print dress and she's just daring you to make judge a comment. her for that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's great. And yeah, she really, she really goes into kind of like the nitty gritty of being pregnant, giving birth, having newborn children. I think sometimes it veers slightly into like cheap body horror comedy, which I don't mm. love. There's a whole section, a whole section where she describes her like friends post birth vagina that I was like, oh God, I actually feel like horrible laughing at this. <laughs> I don't like it. But there's a lot more that's just really kind of incredibly fresh comedy. I think she's she's never scared to shy away from stuff. She's not scared to kind of say things that a knife edge comments that you're like oh god am I allowed to laugh at this can I laugh at this yeah but yeah I really I really liked it what did you like about it Caroline yeah I'm the same like I don't think I've ever watched a Netflix comedy special before although obviously I am aware that they are an important cultural force sometimes and having now watched one I can totally see why from Netflix's possible point of view because it's clearly super cheap to make right Mm, she does a gig anyway in a nice theatre they put cameras up done done some t- and therefore I think they churn out a lot of them and some of them massively take off and some of them don't and Ali Wong's first one which was called Baby Cobra which was filmed I think almost exactly the same time the previous year when she was the same amount pregnant mm. with her first child she's pregnant with her second child in this one really like had a big impact and made a big difference to her career and because I think she says in the show, doesn't she, that, um, you know, we were struggling to fill the theatre for my first one. Like I couldn't give the tickets away. Mm. And now suddenly you're all here and everyone's mm, watching. It's a huge platform. Um, so it can be like a, a really big thing for a person's talent. And I'm so glad it's happened to her because she is, I think, in a way, 
in lots of ways actually subverting the classic like stand-up comedy special format in that she's doing a lot of the same things you know she's she hasn't messed with the format at all it is just her standing on a stage with a mic telling jokes for an hour and a half but as you say her appearance in itself is a provocation you know she's saying I'm an Asian American I'm a pregnant woman I choose to dress in this way and yet you're still gonna find me funny Mm. you know I'm living proof that you don't have to be a white man to stand up here and tell jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in itself was just really nice and interesting to see. But then just completely independent of all that stuff, she is just really, really fucking funny. Uh, I like laughed hysterically through lots of this because, and it feels radical to laugh at like somebody's account of their own butt birth Mm. or stuff about like how difficult it is to stay at home with your children Um, (laughs) yeah that was really funny she said like i'm this close to putting my child in the bin (laughs) um loads of stuff like that also for me partly this is a really basic comedy 101 comment to make but a lot so much of it is in the delivery and not in the actual joke Mm -hmm, where like you know she'll make she'll make a whole series of jokes about people racistly assuming that she's bad at parallel parking but also the fact that she's actually bad at parallel parking so she'll be making jokes like thank you but fuck you you know <laughs> yes i couldn't have done this without you and but she just delivers it in this like angry voice that's i don't know she's just got a lot of charisma essentially it just boils down to the fact that she's very charismatic and so even a joke that you might be like, oh, I don't know if I want to laugh at that joke normally because she just delivers it in this like brilliant way. It becomes really hysterical. So, yeah, I was really won over by her. Yeah, same. I also now follow her on Instagram, which I highly recommend okay, because great. it's like tiny little uh, extra bits from Hard Knock Wife because uh, she posts a lot of like pictures with her children and pictures of her trying to get dressed up to go to important meetings and then having to like hold her child while she's being sick on her that kind of thing Mm -hmm. as you say I find her very engaging and I find her shtick very funny great well for next week Caroline I have a recommendation for you which is an album we're going to do some more music uh it's by a band called Let's Eat Grandma who are two teenagers from Norwich they're 19 their first album came out when they were 16 and it was called I, Gemini. And their second album has just come out this year. And it's called I'm All Ears. And basically all the coolest women that I follow on social media have been recommending it. And sometimes okay. when that happens, I go and listen to the record and I'm like, oh no, this is actually just too cool for me. I don't really get it. Um, <laughs> and I thought maybe that would happen with this record because it is quite kind of experimental, left for field pop. And it's, you know, they've earned comparisons to like churches and grimes and, okay. you know, Grimes is someone that I've never fully got into because I think she is just a little bit too experimental for me. But someone like Charlie XCX, which she's also been compared to, I really, really love, even when she's at her most abstract and weird. And they're kind of in between those two bench posts, I'd say. They're kind of, they are very experimental, but there's also something kind of like irresistibly catchy about their music as well which is very dense very layered um very kind of kaleidoscopic but i think you'll really be into it okay sounds good look forward to it Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? 
We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.